Welcome back to the program. We live in an ironic age. Speed of modern communication, juxtaposed with the traditional entrenched problems we must solve, provides a disconnect that often only humor can bridge. Think about it this way. How often has humor engaged us to better understand tragedy? How long after certain tragedies do we hear the first joke? Not out of disrespect, but out of a way to get our arms around something that our brains have trouble comprehending. When David Letterman asked after 9-11 if we will ever laugh again, he was going to the heart of the role that humor and satire play in our society. From Mark Twain to Will Rogers, from Mort Saul to Stephen Colbert, satire has been a translator of the American experience. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Sophia McLennan. She's a professor of international affairs and comparative literature at Penn State University. She's the author of six previous books. Her latest is Satire Saving Our Nation, Mockery in American Politics. Sophia McLennan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Before we start, I want us to talk about terms and the difference between satire and irony and humor and snark, which we have so much of today. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I could take uh, our whole interview on some of the fine distinctions between them. And in fact, the the book uh, has an entire chapter that sort of charts that out and gives really fun examples of each one. Um, at, at a very basic level, uh, you want to understand the distinction between snark and sarcasm and satire since Snark and sarcasm can just often seem like disapproval, right? Uh, they all have in common that the person is not saying what they think in the sense that, you know, even if you if you came up to me and said, oh, you know, I've got all this going on at work, and, and I responded and said, oh, well, that sounds great. I'm being sarcastic, right? I, you have told me that you're having a hard time, and instead of saying, oh, wow, I'm sorry to hear you're having a hard time, I say, oh, that sounds great for you, right? So at a simple level, we all use a lot of sarcasm. Um, it's a pretty common part of U.S. Uh, you know, communication. But satire is different in that it, it's really hoping to get people to understand uh, that something that they've accepted as the status quo shouldn't be accepted as the status quo. So it's a much more sophisticated form, and it's often political, right? And talk about the nexus between irony and satire. Right. Well, you can't have satire without irony, right? So at a basic level, irony is the bigger umbrella, and sarcasm falls under it, snark falls under it, which is, again, you know, snark is sort of sarcasm 2.0, <laughs> is what you think of it. Um, uh, you, um, you know, irony at the very basic level is is the expression of of a feeling or idea without using the actual words, right? So when something's ironic, it there's a gap between the literal meaning of the word and the way the word's mean, meant to be taken in that consequence. So again, you know, I mean, simple examples of that would be something like, oh, geez, you know, don't you think our political system works just great? I mean, this shutdown, isn't it fabulous, right? So that's just a classic example of using irony, right? Because I didn't mean that. A shutdown is not fabulous. So those are... Those are examples of how people speak using irony, and that particular example is sarcastic. But um, the comedians that that I write about, they're using satire, uh, which, of course, has irony in it, and they're doing it in ways that are meant to be much more politically provocative than just like, oh, you know, uh, leaving you with sort of a sense of critical 
distance from whatever we were talking about. One of the things we've seen historically, and and you address this, is that there are waves of satire, that there's a cyclical nature to this, that we have gone through historical periods where satire has been in its ascendancy, and we've gone through periods where there's there's less of it. What is it that drives the, the growth and the fascination with satire? No, that's a great question. One thing we know for certain is that moments of political crisis tend to be moments of an upsurge in satire. Because as you mentioned in your intro, satire becomes one of the few ways you can express uh, critique and, uh, you know, in moments of political um, tension and and sort of get away with it because there's a little bit of humor in there. It's a little lighthearted. It's not, it doesn't have the aggressive tone to it. So, you know, um, one of the classic examples, of course, is the American Revolution and Ben Franklin and the rise of satire at precisely the moment this nation was born. Um, and we have it at key pivot points in U.S. history. And one of the things we talk about in the book is is the way that satire stepped in after 9-11 to provide one of the few avenues that folks had to express worries and concerns over, you know, what was happening in our country. And it is that sense, the way that satire and humor, in, in a broader sense, provides a way into dealing with things that, that are hard to get our heads around, hard to grasp on, on a psychological level. Absolutely. But the, the other key part of satire is that it's very interested in the shape of public discourse or in, in the shape of the kinds of uh, conversations that are coming from the power and from the elite, right? So if, if, if you're hearing the main story is everything's fine, but the satirist doesn't think everything's fine, their goal will be to expose to you that you've been swallowing, you know, the story and you should question it, right? So satire is really about trying to get the audience to question accepted truths. That's why it comes out a lot in moments of crisis. And in that sense, it's a form of rebellion. Absolutely. And that's why we talk about it being such a, you know, a, a very kind of key part of U.S. identity. Of course, plenty, and we can talk about this more. There's lots of satire um, globally, and it's really on the rise globally. But there's a kind of um, deep sense in, in U.S. identity, right, that we're rebels, right? We mm-hmm. don't like to be told what to, what to think. And so satire is a pretty uniquely patriotic uh, form of expression. There's also the way in which it is tied up with language to a large extent, which makes it interesting to look at as an American phenomenon and interesting to see how it's rising as a global phenomenon. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things that makes, I mean, of course, you can have uh, visual satire and political cartoons are some of your best examples, Mm -hmm. although many times those political cartoons have words in them that help, you know, the the comedy, right? But... um, Satire is so fun to study because, as you point out, it's such a it's such a fine use of language, right? It's, you know, Stephen Colbert's opening sequence on his show has a bunch of words swirl around him, right. and in some ways, it's sort of the the intro to this show is about language and about playing with words and making words mean what they don't mean and making up words and using words incorrectly and all of those kinds of things. And that's a very, very good thing for uh, the public to see and think about at times when, for instance, maybe they're being lied to, right? So 
again, what satire does is it gets you to really think about how language works. And once you start doing that, your critical thinking is improved. It's interesting in looking at the history of satire that it was political in nature in its earliest form, and then it also got caught up in entertainment, and it, it, it bridged this political entertainment complex that we see today. I don't know what that tells us about the satire itself, but now it is moving, as you talk about, to another level in terms of citizen satire. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that we think is one of the most exciting developments in the current uh, landscape of satire in the United States and globally as well. Because of Twitter, because of Facebook, an average citizen can produce a satirical tweet that could be consumed by a million people. And that ability to reach that many people is a very new feature of what social media does when you mix it with satire. The other thing that we're finding is that citizens are increasingly using satire to comment on politics. And it's not a kind of version of, of commenting where they're disgruntled and they're not voting and they think everyone's idiots and they don't want to participate. It's a form of satire that says, I care about my country. I don't like the direction it's going in. I'm going to say something satirical about it, but I'm also going to vote, right? And so that's a very exciting development to observe. How has the sophistication of satire evolved over the years? You know, it's interesting. In some ways, uh, many of the hard, you know, kind of hard basic features of satire, right, have not changed in terms of sophistication in that degree, right? If we go back and we look at um, Jonathan Swift, right, uh, or we look at, at Samuel Clemens or Ben Franklin, honestly, that satire was as sophisticated as anything we're necessarily producing right now. One of the things that's hugely different, as you pointed out, is the fact that so many average citizens are producing it. This is no longer just the... Uh, you know, the job of the professionals. That is one thing that we've noticed that's different. The other thing that's very different is satire being used in places it doesn't belong. Like you might recall that the GOP ran a couple of ads in the lead up to the midterm elections that really were trying to use satire but didn't use it correctly, right? So they ran an ad saying, say yes to this dress. And the concept was that a, fee, a young female voter right. would choose her candidates the same way that the reality TV show Say Yes to This Trust works. And um, it fell really flat because that's not, you know, they didn't use satire in the right way, for instance. Or you'll recall Herman Cain telling us that he was going to bring humor to the White House. And there have been lots of times that we've actually seen politicians attempt to back out of comments by saying they were being satirical, right? Yeah. Um, so that's been one of the ways in which we've seen it change, and it's disturbing because it starts to get confusing to people. They can't tell, you know, is this productive and politically active satire or is this satire that's mocking what's going on here? And um, if anything, sort of the appearance of it everywhere has really changed things. Has there been any kind of an ongoing connection between satire and education? We often see satire as a kind of humor for the educated class. Absolutely. I mean, the research is conclusive. Uh, uh, an audience member's ability to appreciate 
satire is directly related to how bright they are. Um, so, uh, and, and of course, that maps usually in fairly straight ways with their level of education, right? So that's, that's a 100% clear uh, distinction between, you know, the satire as, let's say, a higher form of critique. Uh, the interesting thing for us was to notice that um, the satirists themselves, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, these guys are performing sort of the task of educating the public on major issues of significant social impact in ways that, say, you know, universities aren't doing. Um, and so one of the great examples was Stephen Colbert starting his own super PAC and thereby educating his audience in campaign finance and in the impact of the uh, Citizens United decision. Things that really hadn't worked in other venues were working because the satirists were doing it. Um, and then now you see, of course, some universities offering courses on satire, uh, pretty regularly now because of how significant satire has become as a mode of political speech. And part of that is that satire, by its very nature, demands an aspect of intellectual engagement. Absolutely. And that's why it's such an exciting thing to see millennials so invested in it and so good at it. It's, I, have a, I have a friend who teaches here at Penn State, and she teaches satire in her class, and she says she'll show a clip of Stephen Colbert, and her students actually can't immediately describe what the process is that they're going through. But then when she pushes them on it, they are, in fact, uh, you know, they're understanding the satire. They just don't have the vocabulary to, you know, to describe that. Um, so what that means for us as our, as millennials grow into becoming, you know, they're currently right. The largest uh, voting segment of the population, and it's only going to get bigger by 2020. I think they're expected to be somewhere over 40% uh, of the voting demographic. We will find, hopefully, that the degree to which satire has influenced them and their political thinking will be a positive sign for our nation. And one of the things that's also so interesting is that those that are often the victims of satire, those that are criticized through satire, that their attack on it is often to trivialize it in ways that aren't all that effective. Right. No, that's 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 exactly how it works. So, you know, if um, if you're the, the butt of a satirical joke, then you'll try to dismiss it, which will end up sort of making you look worse. Um, that was sort of what happened with the Tina Fey impersonation of Sarah Palin. Uh, most people think that uh, the, the beginning of the problem was when Sarah Palin had the Katie Couric interview that didn't make her look very good. But when Tina Fey impersonated her and literally read verbatim the same you know, answers that Sarah Palin had given, it just made it worse. And then uh, you may recall uh, uh, John McCain goes on uh, Saturday Night Live after that, and most people think that that was the real end of that campaign. I mean, there wasn't any way for them to recover. Um, although I can't tell you what your perfect response would be, right? I mean, I, <laughs> if I had been a strategist trying to help Sarah Palin on her campaign, I'm not sure what I would have uh, encouraged her to do because you try to be fun-loving and say, I'm fine with this. You know, you guys can pick on me. I'm okay. But it does, like you said, it ends up making you look sort of silly or sillier. 
Has there been, or perhaps we are in, a golden age of satire? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think my sense of this is that satire is present in political discourse, not only in the United States, but globally in a way that we've never seen, and that there's very little on the horizon to suggest that it will wane. Um, and a, a lot of that has to do with the quality of news media, with the way in which most people question the value, especially of things like uh, television news. And so, you know, we're seeing that people actually get more of their political information from satire than ever before. It used to be the case that you'd watch the news and then you'd see a satire of the news or of a political speech. But today people are going first to the satire. That's a very big shift. And the fact that folks, you know, voted Jon Stewart as, the number four most trusted journalist alongside Anderson Cooper is a real sign that there's a sense that people trust the comedians. And that's a very new development. Our our sense of that is that it's only going to increase over time. But it's interesting because satire, to be successful, requires, it seems, a certain baseline knowledge of events. And that without an informed media, without a way in which other information gets to people, satire loses some of its its underpinnings. You're right. And, and, and John Stewart and Stephen Colbert have both given interviews saying, please, 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 please do not come to us first for your news because right. we don't want to do that. That's not our job. We want to call attention to the folly in the news that you've already watched, right? Um, we, you know, we've got all of this breaking stuff on Benghazi now that this report is out. They don't want their viewers to learn about the report first through them. They want them to know about the report so that they can then explain what, you know, you know, you know how that's being spun incorrectly in the media. So, but whether that's the way we want it to be and it ideally should be or not, we're finding that the quality of um, of basic news, traditional news, is generally so low and so silly and so hyperbolic that uh, many viewers, if we're talking about television, they will go to satire first. And so that's really changed it. And you'll see things like uh, John Oliver's uh, often doing 15-minute long pieces because he's literally having to tell his audience about the basic facts of the story at the same time that he's satirizing it, right? Why aren't we seeing more politicians, leaders, whatever, engaging in satire, given how effective it is? Well, you know, that's a great question. I mean, I think I I think that that was one of the things that really killed Herman Cain, among other things. (laughs) Uh, But at a basic level, right, the public wants a president to be presidential, um, the, we know the difference between the satirist, right, and the, the, you know, a politician, and we don't like it when politicians get too chummy uh, with entertainment and cross too much over into that, right? Um, so I think that at the end of the day, that's the real issue. The, the much blurrier line is between the satirist and the journalist today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we really don't want our politicians to be comedians, right? We want our poli- we want our we don't want our president. You know, again, when Herman Cain said, "I'm going to bring humor to the White House," we thought, 
why? <laughs> it's not supposed to be funny. You know, could you please be serious? It's got a lot of serious issues. So I think it doesn't usually go that well for politicians, although it's perfectly fine and it's, it's become sort of a de facto part of a campaign that politicians will show up on some of these shows, right? Um, a lot of research has proven that if you boycott them and you don't go, it is very bad for your campaign. It's interesting to look back 40, 50 years and see how Kennedy in particular used humor and used satire so effectively. Yeah, I mean, some of this is a question, though, too. I mean, one of the things that's very different now um, is the social media component. Mm-hmm. So if you have a politician appear um, in any kind of format where they're sort of in the guise of, of an entertainer. If they make any kind of slip-up, right, the public just hammers them, right? And so this is something that's very new. And, I mean, I can understand that when before folks appear on these shows, they must be just completely nervous because all it takes is one gaffe, and it's viral, right? So that's one of the things that's very different from the Kennedy era. Talk about the quality of satire in social media today and and how good it is. Well, you know, it has with anything, it's always mixed, right? But uh, one of the things that uh, was very interesting to me was to watch the, the Republican Party knew that they were having a difficult time reaching out to millennial voters. So they ran an ad called I'm a Republican, and it was meant to show that Republicans sort of come in all shapes and sizes, they're of color, et cetera, et cetera. And then they launched a hashtag for Twitter. So you would, you ideally, Republicans would send messages saying, I'm a Republican, this is what I'm like, to, you know, kind of dispel the myth of uh, the party. Well, within about an hour of that hashtag being launched, it had been overtaken by millennials and others who were satirizing it. And so, you know, instead of it being something that helped describe the party and the complexity of the party, you now had people writing with the same hashtag, you know, I'm a Republican, I've replaced my legs with guns. Now, you know, you might find that funny or you don't find it funny, but what it does is it certainly um, undermines the mission, right, of of that kind of initiative. Uh, There were, any time now that we have any kind of election going on, we have a number of hashtags that will be produced that are all about using satire. One of the most well-known ones is mock the vote. You might remember right, rock sure. the vote was to get young people to vote right now. Mock the vote is just a hashtag used by people who are making fun of stuff. Some of it is just mean and some of it's actually really good satire. Um, the other one that, that was pretty funny this last election was midterm election pickup lines. Um, you know, and if your listeners don't check these things out, they should just go on. You don't even need a Twitter account to see it. And, you know, they're pretty funny. Uh, some of them were very well done. Uh, we had one that said, I must be a Republican and you must be the middle class because all I want to do is bleep you. And so, you know, it was pretty funny if you thought, oh, that's a pretty good way of characterizing that relationship. And that's funny. Or you don't find it funny, you find it offensive, right? I mean, you know, these things are always tricky. The audience will have a different response depending on their position. Is there a downside to satire? Have we seen satire historically ever really work against the public interest? 
Yeah, I mean, the sat- okay, so the real risk of satire is cynicism, um, you know, in the sense that that satire might just make you totally disaffected and disappointed. But as I always point out, um, and we discuss this in the book, satire can't make you disappointed in a government that's not disappointing. Right. So the point is that the satire might be a catalyst to draw your attention to flaws in our system, but satire doesn't create the flaws in the system. So if you're someone like me who thinks, look, the truth might be hard, but let's know the truth and try to make things better. I mean, the goal of satire is not to have you finish cynical, but to have you finish you know, maybe a little bit angry, but passionately angry where you say, no, this isn't the way I want things to be. I want to work to make them better. And at the end of the day, that's what we really want from our democracy is is an electorate that cares and is passionate about making things better, not just being angry at the system the way it is. Because at the end of the day, it really is about magnification and translation. It is not original unto itself. It couldn't exist in a vacuum. It requires those other conditions that you're talking about in order to make it effective. Right. And I mean, folks worry, oh, is satire making everybody hate the country? I'm like, well, satire can't make everybody hate the country. In fact, all satire can do is say, geez, you know, maybe Nancy Pelosi, you know, is got, you know, this or that issue behind her that maybe should make you question her. And and that's a good thing. I mean, they can't make up the material, right? The satirist doesn't make up the material. So if there's nothing to mock, satire ceases to exist. The raw materials come from our society. Sophia McLennan, her book is Satire Saving Our Nation, Mockery in American Politics. Sophia, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.